Welcome to the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast, hosted by the rock star of consulting, Alan Weiss. Be prepared to have your beliefs challenged and your behaviors questioned. Welcome back to the Uncomfortable Truth. My guest today is a longtime friend of mine and also someone I voted for, Seth Magaziner, our uh, congressman, um, uh, newly elected for the second congressional district in Rhode Island. We only get two congressmen and he is one. He's given me permission to call him Seth. I'm not being unduly friendly. That's how I've known him. Some background. He started his career as a public school teacher. That's something I always have admired. My wife was a public school teacher. Uh, he served as Rhode Island's general treasurer for eight years. That's where I met him af- uh, actually. Uh, he's a new parent. Uh, his um, uh, his um, daughter or son, Seth, remind me. Son. His son yeah. is about the age of my newest granddaughter. Uh, and he's working to build a country where everyone has a chance to achieve the American dream, just like his family did. It's an interesting story. His grandfathers were both sons of immigrants. They grew up in poverty. Despite not having much, when they returned from World War II, they found good middle-class jobs. Grandpa Bob, as he called him, was a steel worker in Worcester, and his grandpa Lewis, a bookkeeper in a fruit canning company in New York. With those jobs, they bought homes, they started families, put their kids through school. This was the American dream that was so common a generation ago. The promise that with hard work and perseverance, each generation can build a better life for their kids than they had for themselves. And I tell you how much this resonates with me. I am the eldest of the baby boomers. And um, I, I'm one of the last, I think, of the pure American dreams and that I grew up in poverty and I went to state schools and public schools and here I am today. So I, I love your message, Seth, and thank you for being with me today. Well, thank you for, for the invitation and thank you, Alan, for everything that you do. I mean, you have devoted your career to helping people in a myriad of ways um, uh, find, you know, confidence and abilities that they didn't know they had. And uh, I, I'm very pleased to join you and help however I can in, in getting your message out. Well, I'm sure the audience will love to hear it. It's very generous of you. But it's typical that you're never too busy. I know here you are taking the time. Is and what, What's the proper title? Is it, is it called a freshman representative or is that? Yes. Of, it is. A, I can still use the, the the mail there. Freshman representative. Okay. Uh, what is that experience like when you first officially get in there? You're sworn in. There are 435 total representatives, but I don't know how big your class was of, of new ones. I guess uh, about what a, a half, right? Or, or, or well, there are about 75 or so new okay. members this year. Yeah. What was that like for you? Uh, well, it, it, it's first of all a tremendous honor to represent our state. I'm a born and raised Rhode Islander, as you know. I love Rhode Island and have the opportunity to represent our wonderful state in. The People's House in, in the House of Representatives is, is really uh, incredible. And uh, as far as what it's like, um, when you first join, it's a whirlwind. Uh, you know, the orientation for new members starts about four days after the election. So you picture, you know, you go through a campaign, it's grueling, it's exhausting. We had one of the most competitive races in the country. There were both parties dumped millions of dollars into our race. It was neck and neck all the way into the end. And so you kind of get through election day and you're still sort of in a daze and you're still, uh, you know, uh, recovering, I guess, physically. And before you know it, a couple of days later, you're on a plane to D.C. And um, so you literally three, four days after the election, you're down in D.C. with the 70 or so other freshman members. You start to meet some of the more senior members who you know are coming to orientation, introducing themselves. And orientation is interesting. It's it's a mix of incredibly 
interesting and resonant lessons and then also very mundane things like in any other new job setting up your it systems and your direct deposit and getting your health insurance figured out and all that right where the but, rest um, is all right <laughs> yeah exactly and and so but i'll tell you i mean one one moment that really stuck with me is um I think on our second day of orientation, uh, Nancy Pelosi was still Speaker of the House um, uh, because she was finishing out, you know, her term before the Republicans took over. And um, she had a dinner for the new members uh, in the Capitol in in this very ornate room called Statue, Statuary Hall. And I, I remember very clearly what she said. She said, you know, Article One, Section One of the Constitution is devoted to the House of Representatives. So the cons, the framers started with the House before they got to writing about the executive branch and the presidency or the U.S. Senate or the Supreme Court. They started with the House of Representatives because to them, that was the purest form of American democracy in the House. You know, we're elected every two years so that we'll be the most responsive to the desires of the people. And also uniquely, she said, the. Um, House of Representatives is unique in that the only way to become a member is to be elected by the people you represent. There are other ways to become a U.S. senator. You can, if there's a vacancy in some states, you can be appointed by a governor or appointed by a state legislature or something like that. I might just interrupt for a second. For a long time, senators were appointed by the legislature. Exactly. That was originally the way it was. And similarly, you know, the president is technically elected by an electoral college, not by the popular vote. Um, and we've had several presidents be elected without winning the popular vote. But in the House, the Constitution says you have to be elected by your constituents. You can't be appointed even if there's a vacancy. And so she was making the point that the House of Representatives really is the core of American democracy, uh, the oldest and most powerful democracy in, in the modern world. And so that really resonated to, you know, hear from her this historic figure talking about the important role that the house plays in in the fabric of our country uh, was a really incredible moment and something that i've carried with me uh you know my first six months in office i know how important family is to you and along with this uh, sort of uh, orientation indoctrination i guess there are some decisions about uh, being away from home more often than you'd like I know David Cicilline, who was our former uh, congressman, uh, would tell me about uh, the fact that uh, sometimes he'd walk back to his house here in Providence and not recognize certain things. He was away so much. So, but I imagine you and your wife had to talk about that and accommodate it. We did, and one of the things we did when we when I was deciding whether or not to run uh, for Congress was we were able to get connected with a few other members about our age who also have young kids and sort of hear from them a little bit about how they manage it. Um, so the way the schedule works out, uh, first of all, Rhode Island is home base. So my wife, Julia, our one-year-old son, Max, are in Rhode Island full-time. And I told my staff very clearly at the beginning, uh, we're maximizing my time in Rhode Island. I wanna be the last flight down to DC and the first flight home, right? Yeah. And and that may mean that that I forego some opportunities in DC, you know, but uh, number one, I want to maximize the time that we have together as a family, but also I think I'll be a more effective representative of Rhode Island the more time I spend in Rhode Island, going around the state and talking with people and listening uh, to their their concerns and, and their ideas. And so 
so a typical week for me is I usually fly down to DC on a Monday afternoon and I fly home on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, that's that's the normal schedule. And it's not every week. It's two or three weeks a month. And then the rest of the time I'm working in Rhode Island, uh, meeting with constituents and working on legislation. And of course, in this era of Zoom and, and other modern communications technology, it's easy for me to stay in touch with my staff in D.C. while I'm in Rhode Island. As long as I've known you, you've been a very positive guy and also a very accessible person, which I think is part of your success. Uh, we've talked uh, as a country about polarization for a long time now. Uh, do you feel optimistic that people working together from both sides can eventually come together and there'll be more bipartisanship, especially on issues which affect everyone? I do. You know, um, a couple of things have struck me. And, and again, I'm new. I've only been there six months. But number one, in general, people in Congress are nicer than I expected. Um, for the most part. Uh, obviously, we have, we have a body of 435 people. And I, I kind of expected that, you know, a lot of egos, a lot of sharp elbows, a lot of, you know, whatever. And and it hasn't been like that. For the most part, people are very nice and willing to meet, willing to engage, willing to spend time with a freshman newbie member like me. Um, you know, and part of it, I, I, I loved working in the Rhode Island State House. I was state treasurer here for eight years and had some wonderful colleagues in, in Rhode Island. But, you know, Rhode Island politics can be sort of a macho scene. And in D.C., it's very different. People are, are you know, maybe it's because there's so many kind of genteel people from the South. You know, it's, it's a more of a polite place. There are also a lot of issues that really are bipartisan issues that don't tend to make the news because the news media will wants to pay attention to where the disagreements are and not where the consensus is. So, you know, I'll give you a few examples, right? Like, I think there's a lot of bipartisanship right now around things like uh, making American, America's economy more competitive with, with China, right? So bringing back manufacturing jobs, protecting intellectual property of American companies from Chinese surveillance. Um, you know, you saw that with like the Chips and Science Act that passed last year. It's a, a big bill that passed to bring back semiconductor manufacturing to the United States. Uh, there's a lot of bipartisanship around this, around sort of concern about America's economic and political competition with China and how we become more competitive. So that's an area where there's a lot of bipartisan work happening right now. And then other issues, too. I, I think that there's a good chance We'll have a bipartisan bill this year on um, uh, protecting children from some of the more dangerous stuff that's on social media and giving parents a little more control over what kids are accessing on social media. Um, that's something where there's some like real bipartisanship happening right now. And so these are not always the front page headlines, but I do see some of those issues. There, of course, are other issues that are very polarized right now, um, you know, gun safety and abortion rights and things like that. But um, that's not every issue. There, there, are, there are some where there still is real bipartisan collaboration happening. And you made an excellent point before about the purity of the House of Representatives really uh, being representative of the people quite directly. And if I remember my civics classes uh, correctly, uh, everybody's elected every two years. Is that correct? Yes. So my question to you is this then, uh, how much of a burden is it 
to have to be constantly raising money, which is part of the process, uh, because you can't wait until the election. It's almost an ongoing uh, uh, pursuit. Uh, does that how, how heavily does that weigh on people like yourself? Quite a bit. Um, members of Congress spend an absurd amount of time raising money. And, you know, both sides do it and and, you know, almost every member does it because uh, we have to because that's that's how we are competitive and how we get our message out during a campaign. But I would love to see real campaign finance reform to put some limits or some guardrails on it, um, because, you know, there are members of, of the House that spend 10, 15, 20 hours a week fundraising. And that's time that they're not spending right. studying legislation or talking to their constituents. Um, and so I would love to see some real reforms like reversing the Citizens United decision, which opened the door to unlimited dark money in campaigns. I would love to see some limits, not just on the amounts that candidates are allowed to raise, but the amounts that they're allowed to spend on advertising. That would probably take a constitutional amendment um, uh, in order to uh, enact. So that would be a long shot. But you know, that's the way that a lot of other democracies around the country operate. In Great Britain, you know, elections uh, are governed in a very different way. And my understanding is that there in, in Britain, uh, political candidates aren't allowed to start doing TV ads and other advertising until a month or two before the election. And so I think that there are reforms that would help a lot. Uh, but in the meantime, what I try to do is Yes, I do the fundraising just like everybody else does, but I really try to block off time also when I'm in Rhode Island to meet with people who don't have a lot of money and to meet with, you know, small businesses and labor unions and just regular people as often as I can, because one of the risks is that some members of Congress, because they're raising money so much, they spend all their time talking to rich people and just hearing about rich people problems, right? And and rich people problems uh, can be real problems, but uh, working people have different problems sometimes. <laughs> and uh, so I, I try to be really mindful of making sure that when I'm in Rhode Island, I'm hearing from a broad swath of the population as often as possible uh, so that I can really internalize what working people are, are going through in a way that maybe some other members of Congress don't. That's a really good point. I remember years and years ago, there was a, a critic in New York, a drama critic, I think, named Pauline Thiel, and she couldn't understand how Nixon was elected because none of her friends voted for him. <laughs> and, you know, she lived on the, you know, very tight little community on the Upper East Side or someplace. Uh, so recently, is about a month ago, we were facing this debt problem, you know, renewing spending limits and so forth, and perhaps our credit rating going down, leading on into a recession and so forth. Uh, did people who you talk to in government feel this was a real threat or were they confident that, well, this happens, a lot of it is maneuvering and we'll work it out? So most people never believed that there would be a default and the financial markets, for the most part, signaled that most investors did not believe there was going to be a default either. Um, you know, sometimes as you, know, you as a, a business strategist and consultant know this well, you know, sometimes in a negotiation, both sides will sort of wait until the deadline in order to get together and really hash things out so that they have more time to sort of posture and maneuver and look for angles to, to get the best outcome for themselves. So uh, I, I'd say the 
my level of concern was medium because I didn't think there would be a default, but if there were one, the results would have been catastrophic. So sort of a low probability, but high impact scenario. Um, if we had a default, unemployment would have gone up you know, to 10 plus percent. Most economists were saying millions of people would have lost their jobs. Millions of people would have been thrown into poverty because the financial markets would have been in turmoil. And so my base case assumption was always that cooler heads would prevail, and I'm glad they did. Um, but if they hadn't, we would have been in a real fix. And what I'm concerned about is we can't let the debt ceiling become a regular feature of budget negotiations going forward. Because if we go through this every single time, then there's a chance we could have an accidental default, right? right? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and all of these like last minute deals, even after you have a last minute deal, it takes time to enact the legislation and to cut the checks to your creditors and everything else. And, and a, an accidental default is very possible. So uh, I think using the debt ceiling limit as a negotiating chip is irresponsible. I am glad that one of the concessions that the President Biden won in that negotiation is a multi-year debt ceiling increase so that we're not going to have to go through that again, at least for the next couple of years. Um, we'll still have budget debates, and there's still a chance we could have a government shutdown later this year. But at the very least, we don't have to worry about a default uh, for the next few years, and, and I think that's a very positive outcome. When the Russians invaded Ukraine, it was predicted by them and by others that it would be about two weeks and they'd be in Kiev. Now we're 500 days later, uh, and the Russians are on the defensive. Uh, when talking to your colleagues and, and perhaps some people in the military who uh, either testify or are part of the uh, on working, uh, ongoing workings of government, uh, do you think we're learning a great deal here uh, about our own military capacity and our own abilities? Yeah, and our allies as well. Um, so first of all, let's start with the basics. The Ukrainian people are locked in a struggle not only for their own freedom and their own sovereignty, uh, but really uh, they are on the front lines of defending democracy. Um, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine was illegal, immoral. Uh, innocent people are dying because of one man, that's Vladimir Putin's uh, greed and selfishness. And make no mistake, if he was allowed to conquer Ukraine, he would not stop there. Uh, you know, he would start looking at Georgia, he would start looking at uh, potentially Poland and some of our NATO allies. Uh, he understands one thing, and that is brute force. And so it is absolutely essential that the Ukrainians are successful in beating back this invasion. And credit to the Ukrainian people. They have shown that they are willing to fight, and they are fighting hard, they are dug in, they are determined, and they deserve our support. One of, I think, the great stories of this whole tragic series of events over the last 500 days is, you know, Vladimir Putin wanted to make NATO weaker, and instead, NATO is now stronger. You know, the alliance is stronger. NATO 
members are contributing more to the alliance in in defense spending than they had been before. Uh, obviously, um, you know Finland has joined NATO. Sweden hopefully will, uh, you know, soon. And uh, I think that for existing NATO members, this invasion has shown us all the importance of having an alliance of democratic like-minded nations and so you know putin's plan in some respect has already backfired he wanted to make nato weaker instead he made it stronger and president biden i think deserves credit for that as well uh you know he has shown leadership on the national stage in strengthening nato and uh i think as a result uh, our country the united states is is much safer I, this might be a bit of a difficult question because I'm going to restrict it. But if, on a nonpartisan basis, what do you think are the are the two or three greatest challenges facing the country right now? Yeah, so I'd say um, I'll give you three. I think number one is uh, we all have to be concerned with climate change. Uh, it's real. It is already costing enormous amounts of taxpayer money. It is displacing people all across the world, and we need to get serious about combating the climate crisis. Uh, number two, uh, income inequality and wealth inequality is at the highest level now that it's been since, you know, I think about the Victorian era. And I don't believe that this level of inequality is sustainable, and uh, that can pose security risks to our country and to other countries around the world if we don't ensure that we have a system where people who are willing to work hard and are really powering the economy with their labor get a fair share of the proceeds of their labor. And so income inequality is a challenge. And then third, um, there has been a global rise of anti-democratic movements that is very concerning. Hmm. Um, I, again, without making this a partisan thing, uh, there are political forces both here in the US and around the world that are engaging in election denial and promoting conspiracy theories and trying to push uh, an agenda of making it harder for people to exercise the right to vote. And that's concerning and something that we need to push back on as well. So, you know, that being said, all of these challenges are challenges that I think we can meet. And they're things that I'm excited to be working on. So when it comes to defending democracy, I'm a member of the Homeland Security Committee. And we are working on strategies to push back against uh, violent extremism, both here in the U.S. and abroad. I'm a member of the Natural Resources Committee, where we are very much working on how to make this clean energy transition a reality and to do it in a way that uh, saves money for consumers and taxpayers while making our planet healthier. And uh, on income inequality, uh, you know, I'm a strong supporter of uh, things like a fair minimum wage and making it easier for workers to organize when they choose to do so, uh, so that workers have the ability to uh, retain some of the wealth and value that they create. And so I, I think we know what the solutions are. We just need to have the political will to uh, to get big things done. It's interesting that you and I both live about uh, 30 or 40 minutes from Newport. 
which, uh, you know, symbolizes the Gilded Age. And uh, the reason those uh, great mansions fell into uh, public hands, no longer private hands, was that Congress passed a minimum wage law of a dollar an hour, and mm -hmm. they could no longer afford to keep them up. I have two more questions uh, for you, Seth. Uh, you've been very kind with your time. First, there was an article, I think, in the New York Times or the New Yorker magazine just this past week, that there's a, a restaurant called, uh, I think it's called uh, Al Milano, Cafe Milano in Washington, which is supposed to be neutral turf. Everybody goes there for both parties, power brokers, and they all have agreed it's neutral, nonpartisan, and they sit side by side and they have good conversations. Have you been able to get there yet? You know, I I had not heard of this place. I, um, uh, I'm new to Washington. I haven't gotten to know many of the restaurants yet, but now that you flag it for me, I will make a point to uh, to uh, check it out. I understand it's very hard to get a seat, so you want to you might want to ask right. me see if she's got any pull. <laughs> will do. My final question is this: How can people learn more about you? How can they, if they so wish, contribute to your campaign and to your plans? Uh, tell us how they can they can read more and see more. Well, that's very kind of you to ask. Um, I, I'd point people to two places uh, first. Uh, for information about uh, our campaign, you can go to sethmagaziner.com. And uh, and then if you're interested in digging in a little deeper, uh, looking at bills that I've introduced and that sort of thing, our official side uh, website is magaziner.house.gov. So sethmagaziner.com for the campaign, magaziner.house.gov for the uh, the official side. And thank you. Uh, uh, Thank you. This has been fun. I, I I appreciate the opportunity, and as I said before, I'm very grateful for all the work that you've done and uh, the people you've helped uh, here in Rhode Island and across the world. So thank well, you, Alan. Thank you. It's really consistent with how accessible you've been to people, and I greatly appreciate it. And I wish you and your family continued success. Seth. Thank you. Thank you. You too. You've been listening to the Uncomfortable Truth with Alan Weiss. For free access to Alan's newsletters, audio and video resources, and for information about his global events and coaching communities, please visit alanweiss.com. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith.